and uh, we'll read we'll read the first 12 verses of that chapter second letter of Paul to Timothy so brothers and sisters let's hear God's word and let's let's uh, I pray now Lord God you would help us all help me and help all here Lord God to hear the word and for all distractions and cares to be put to the back of our minds and that Lord we would be with you now and you with us ministering tenderly and gently to your people here this evening for Jesus sake amen Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. These three letters, two to Timothy and one to Titus, are known as the pastoral epistles because they deal with pastoral matters. And in 1 Timothy and in Titus, we might say that Paul is particularly concerned about church pastoral matters. He's instructing 1 Timothy and then Titus how to how to get on with the job, 
in the church in Ephesus, in Timothy's case, in the church in Crete, in Titus's case. But this second pastoral epistle, pastoral letter, is more of a one-to-one pastoral letter. It's not so much Paul to Timothy for the sake of the church, although the church is very much in view. It's Paul to Timothy for the sake of Timothy. It's the Apostle Paul, the elderly apostle in prison, as we thought about this morning with Lindsay in prison in Rome, but now not, not with some years ahead where he might yet be released and minister and carry on writing more letters and preaching more sermons. But now, Paul, in the last days and weeks of his life, writing his farewell epistle to beloved Timothy. I just want to ask one quick question before we go and look at this uh, verse, verse 7, uh, this evening. Who's this? Uh, I'll read verse 7 again. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Who's that for? Is it only for Timothy? Well, it's first for Timothy. It's first directed at Timothy individually. But who is the us? Is it Paul and Timothy together, gospel workers? Yes, it is. But the us goes beyond Paul and Timothy to include all who labor in the gospel. And we can even say this. For anyone here who regards themselves as, in some sense, a servant of God in making known the gospel of God. This is for you, and this is for me. This verse is for you. It's for us. Because we may not have titles, we may not have posts or positions, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is that we as Christians are gospel ambassadors whose joy it must be to make Jesus Christ known. And to such as us come these words, God has given us a spirit, not of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now the first thing I want us to see briefly is simply this. God's servants are given a daunting task. And let's look at Timothy's daunting task. And if we look at the two letters to Timothy, we get an overview of the kind of things that Timothy had to do. He had to contend with false teachers. He had to deal with false teachers who made the wrong use of the law who misapplied the scriptures, who went on about the genealogies, and worse things than that. He had to charge them not to teach any different doctrine. In addition, Timothy had to ensure that proper order was observed in the church in Ephesus as they met for worship. In addition to that, Timothy had to oversee the selection and appointment of elders and deacons. In addition to that, Timothy had to keep on going, keep on going in the ministry, 
day by day and week by week, proclaiming the gospel in season and out of season. In addition to that, Timothy had to watch his own life and doctrine very closely. But in addition to all these things, that would be true of any gospel minister or pastor, Timothy seems to have been prone to a certain temperamental weakness. We might call him Timid Tim, and that's who he was. That, By the way, the adjective timid and the name Timothy are not related to each other at all. They're quite different roots, okay? But Timothy happened to be Timid Tim. He was a retiring kind, a sensitive kind, a frail temperament, a nervous fellow. We were on holiday a year or two ago and we took with us in the car to listen to uh, some wonderful old uh, uh, CDs of the Mr. Men. The Mr. Men. Remember the Mr. Men? And um, one of them we really enjoyed was Mr. Jelly. And poor old Mr. Jelly, if he walked on a leaf or heard a twig crack or a bird flew past, he'd go, oh, calamity, oh, terror, oh, disaster, oh, it's the end of the world. Oh, dear, oh, dear, poor Mr. Jelly. He used to jump at anything. Now, I'm not saying Timothy was like Mr. Jelly, but he was in that half of humanity, okay? He, he was inclined to be a nervous fellow. And Paul had to tell the church in Corinth, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Dear Corinthians, when Timothy comes, he may not come and arrive looking, you know, full of himself and super confident and walking on air and saying, Hi, I'm Timothy. He might come in a little bit, uh, not quite as boldly as that. Put him at ease. Put the guy at ease. Make him a cup of tea. Say, here you go, Tim. Sit down. What would you like? Milk, sugar? How do you like your tea? Weak or strong? Put him at ease. See, he needs you to encourage him. And we know that Timothy was prone to illnesses. Had a weak stomach. Didn't just drink tea. (laughs) Paul says to him, stop drinking only water. Drink a little wine because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. Timothy, like everyone here, was what psychologists might call a psychosomatic whole. His body and his mind, his soul and his physical frame were all interlinked. And as a nervous fellow, he may have been particularly prone to disorders of the stomach. And here he is, facing the prospect that Paul, his beloved apostle and mentor, will soon be gone. The man who's been a father to him, on death row, and about to be, he says, says Paul, poured out like a drink offering. I'm, I'm about to finish my race, which I've been running for the Lord. Is it any wonder, then, that a fellow like Timothy might be more than unusually nervous and timid and troubled by this? We, we read in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul says, As I remember your tears, tears, what, what made Timothy cry? I wonder, grief that he realizes he may never see Paul again? I'm sure there was that. But maybe also tears of anxiety, tears of alarm, tears of worry. I don't enjoy the work I've got to do. 
I'm finding it hard. I've got these false teachers. I've got these troublesome churches. It's not in my strength to do this, Paul, my father, he says. I face a daunting task. And he's not alone in that, is he? God's servants today face a daunting task. How? Fill in the blanks. There's the opposition of an unbelieving world out there. There's the anger, which I refer to in my pastoral letter. There's the anger, the increasing antagonism of people towards Christians. And then there's sometimes the far more painful opposition that can come from inside the church. Paul, Timothy knew all about that. There can be error and immorality and a lack of love and indifference and rebellious lack of support. And then there is for the man himself, for Timothy, there is the battle against sin and unbelief within which intensifies when the gospel work is taken up. There's personal weakness. There's physical weakness. There's a sense of being so ill-equipped for the task and of being isolated, which for the gospel servant like Timothy can seem quite paralyzing. Truly, God's servants are called to a daunting, daunting task. But, my second point, God's servants must not be governed by fear. They must not be governed or ruled or directed by fear. We're in verse 7 of chapter 1. Why does Paul say this? For God gave us, you and me, Timothy, and every Christian, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Interesting translation. God gave us a spirit, but not of fear. Or maybe God has not given us a spirit of fear. This is the point. The spirit or the attitude of fear is not something that God gives his servants. To be afraid, to be terrified is not a spirit that God gives to his servants. And we need to understand that the word that Paul uses here for fear is not the usual word for fear that we find in the New Testament. The most common word for fear is the Greek word phobos, phobos, from which we get the word phobia. And phobia means something different to fear in the New Testament. But the the usual word for fear, phobos, can mean the fear of the Lord, an altogether healthy fear. A right fear. But the word that Paul uses here, dahlia, is a word used only once in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's a negative word. We would translate it as cowardice, fearfulness, faint-heartedness. It's a lack of courage, a lack of moral courage. We might even say a lack of, in the case of a pastor like Timothy, a lack of manly courage when such courage is called for. It's never noble. It's never honorable. It's always a failing. It's always 
a weakness. And this is what Paul is saying. No servant of God must ever say, it's just my temperament. It's just my makeup. It's just the way I am. I've just got to live with it and you've just got to live with me. To act according to this kind of fear, this cowardice, is to give pride of place in our hearts, to doubt, to unbelief, to temptation, even to sin. Now you might stop me now and say, Paul, you're being harsh. You're not being a pastor now. And you've just said yourself five minutes ago that Timothy was temperamentally prone to a timidity. That was his personality, right? And didn't God make Timothy and give him his particular temperament and personality? Well, let's look at that for a moment or two. We need to be careful. We know that God's servants, God's people, all people have hugely varying temperaments. And the temperament that I have and that you have is an incredibly complex mix of both nature and nurture. And the debates go on about how much nature and how much nurture play a part. But we know that the creator God furnishes his servants with very different temperaments. The apostle Peter was far bolder and far more outgoing in many ways than the apostle John. Mary was far more temperamentally retiring than her sister Martha. And maybe Timothy was more temperamentally sensitive in some ways than Paul. And God made his servants that way. The gentleness and the sensitivity of a man like Timothy was and is a a creative gift of God for him, as it might be for you, whatever your temperament is. You are what you are by God's creation with that particular personality. But this is where we must be very clear indeed. God never created anyone to be cowardly, fearful, just as he never created anyone to be short-tempered, or lustful, or idolatrous, or self-pitiful. We cannot say when we act in those ways, it's just the way God made me. God made me like this. It's, it's actually God's fault. If, if I'm cowardly, if I'm fearful, if I'm given to, to fear, well, it's, it's really not me. It's, it's the character, it's the temperament that God has given me. Now, we must be very careful here. Let's be gentle and gracious towards Timothy. Was his fearfulness real? Yes. Did Timothy enjoy being fearful? No. And an unwanted thought or emotion inside us can be very real, very powerful, very insistent and most unwelcome. Timothy's fearfulness and his inclination to cowardice, if we can call it that, was no phantom. It was nothing he could just brush away and say, it doesn't exist, it's, it's not really there at all. 
And we can imagine that as Paul writes this letter and as Timothy opens it and reads it, that this fearfulness in Timothy was loud and relentless. But Paul's word to Timothy and to us is this. God has not given us that spirit. This spirit of fear, this attitude, this way of thinking and then of going about our lives is not from God. It's not from God. It says in the Westminster Confession, very correctly, of course, that God is not the author of sin. God will permit sins to be committed by us. But God is never the author of sin, the originator of sin, the one who, 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 who makes us sin. Where does sin, all sin, come from? When you sin or I sin, where does it come from? It comes from our imperfectly sanctified nature, the remaining sin inside us. It's amplified by an outside and hostile world. It's intensified even more by the suggestions of Satan. But the spirit of fear is not from God. And therefore it must not be the ruling, governing, determining principle of life and conduct. Not for Timothy. Not for us. We must not be governed by a spirit of fear. Nor by a spirit of lust nor by a spirit of anger, nor by a spirit of complaining, nor by a spirit of of, of hatred or anything like that. No, we are governed by a different spirit. Let me just be very clear before I come to my final point, in case we misunderstand. If you or I are assailed for example, as in Timothy's case, by a fearful, frightening thought. Something that wants to muzzle us and paralyze us and shut us down. The fact that that thought has come into your mind is no sin on your part, necessarily. No, these sins come at us. They come like fiery darts. But it becomes a sin It becomes a sin when that thought, when that spirit of fear becomes what drives us and dictates our actions and our behavior. If Timothy woke up one morning at four o'clock feeling anxious and terrified, that anxious feeling inside him is no sin. But if he then decides to stay in bed all day or stay at home all day and says, I can't go out, I won't go out, I won't go and see these people, I won't go about my work, I won't write to these false teachers, I won't think about the church, I'm going to stay back, I can't do this, I can't do this, then a spirit of fear has overtaken him. And that spirit is not from God. So then, what is the spirit That is from God. Final point. God's servants are given God's spirit. God's servants are given God's spirit. The question is not what is the spirit. But rather who is the spirit. 
William Hendrickson and other commentators, I think, are right in saying that the spirit spoken of here in verse 7 could well be spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that we all need to take on board. It's such vital teaching for every one of us. The Holy Spirit in you and me as believers is not about mere feelings and emotions. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, working in and through a believer, works through and governs all our human faculties. A timid Christian, like you, like me, might well say, I feel scared. I feel nervous. I feel anxious. And that's what we might call the spirit of fear. It's all about the way we feel. And we can all be susceptible to it, can't we? We can wake up one morning, maybe for a second or two, we're feeling okay. And then a thought comes in. An anxious thought invades our mind. And it triggers these thoughts that can be so frightening, so crippling. And I imagine that's how Timothy was inclined to feel just when he received this letter from Paul. Imagine Timothy around this time, feeling pretty low as it was anyway. But then this letter comes, and he perhaps wakes up thinking, Oh, another day of ministry. What do I need to do today? And then immediately his heart begins to sink as he says to himself, Oh, no, these false teachers, these disordered churches, these pastoral difficulties... These problems with my own health which contribute to my own depression and anxiety. The fact that Paul is miles away from me. I can't get in touch with him. We can imagine Timothy maybe saying, Oh, I wish that they'd invented WhatsApp now rather than 2,000 years in the future. And I could just send a message to Paul, but I can't. What a pain. And we can imagine Timothy being sunk by a spirit of fear. Paul says, my child Timothy, I know how you feel. I felt as you feel. I felt like that in Corinth a number of years ago. I was really troubled in Corinth. And the Lord actually came and stood by my bed one night in person and spoke to me and encouraged me and put moral fiber in my being and made me strong. The Lord himself came to me and he conquered the spirit of fear in me. And Timothy And all believers in the church, worldwide, in every age, understand this. Receive this. God gave you and me a spirit not of fear. It's not the spirit that God has given us. But it's a spirit of power and love and self-control. Timothy, God gave you A better spirit. God gave you the Holy Spirit. It's not about how you feel from day to day. Or how unreliable our feelings are. They're real, aren't they? They're horribly real. But they're so unreliable. So fleeting. So fluctuating. 
Timothy, don't look at your feelings any more than Peter should look at the wind and the waves as he tries to walk on the Sea of Galilee towards Jesus. Look at someone better and remember the spirit who is inside you, the very spirit of the risen Jesus. Don't look at things from your own narrow, cramped, small, limited perspective. Look at things from the perspective of God. Timothy, God gave us a better spirit. God gave us himself. God's person, the third person of God, lives inside you and has taken ownership of you. Now I want to leave more detailed treatment of this verse and these three attributes of power and love and self-control for next time. God willing. But just very briefly as I close, do you see how Paul encourages timid Tim in this verse and in the verses which follow? How Paul pastors Timothy? Let's just have a very quick look through some of these verses. In verse 2, In this chapter of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul calls Timothy, my beloved child. Why does he call him my beloved child? He wasn't his father, was he? Oh, but he was, wasn't he? And back in the first letter to Timothy, he calls him even more poignantly and touchingly, my true child in the faith. Paul had no biological son. But Timothy became his son, just as Onesimus had become Paul's son when he was in chains, and Titus had become Paul's spiritual son. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who gave Paul birth is the Spirit who gives Timothy birth. They are born of the Spirit, both of them. In verse 5, Paul speaks of Timothy's, do you see the words here? Sincere faith. A sincere faith, a genuine faith, an unfeigned faith, a real faith, the real deal, real Christian faith. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from just listening to anyone talking. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It's Spirit-generated. The Holy Spirit brought Timothy to the birth of faith. And then he reminds him, you see in verse 5, of his grandmother and his mother, sincere believers before Timothy. And what does he say about them? Sincere faith dwelt in them. They knew the Holy Spirit's power. They knew his presence too. Your own flesh and blood, Timothy. They no doubt prayed for Timothy before he was born, that he would be saved, would love the Lord, and he did. And then in verse 6, Paul urges Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. And he's saying to him, Timothy, sometimes when it's hot in here, we fan ourselves, don't we, to cool ourselves down. Well, Timothy says, Paul says to Timothy, listen, just as a flame is burning low, I'm writing to you to urge you to, to do this to yourself, to get that flame burning brightly again. Timothy seems to have been like a candle that had almost gone out, sputtering feebly. But Paul knows that the Lord does not despise the bruised reed, and the Lord does not snuff out faintly smoldering wicks. He fans them back into flame again. And he's doing that 
now with Timothy. And we can see how he does it in verse 9 onwards. He reminds Timothy of the gospel. The God who saved us, he says, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ, in Christ Jesus, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. My final words for now. You may not be fearful at this precise moment. You may not be fearful. You may not be anxious about tomorrow, and if that's the case, praise God. You may nevertheless feel weak spiritually, lacking in spiritual vigor, low in spiritual expectation. You feel like your light is burning low. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is the one who fans into flame that burning light once more. How? How? As we come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we remember that God has called us to a holy calling. It's not our works. It never could be. It's not our own goodness or our own deeds. It's God's holy calling that he loved us and called us and saved us and he knows us and he's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. May the Lord fan into flame your and my sputtering flame this evening for his name's sake. Let's pray together briefly.